Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey, Freaky Friends! It's Michelle and Melissa from the Freaky Fridays Podcast. We are sisters in separate states and love to talk about all kinds of spooky, freaky, and scary shit while drinking and laughing through our fear. Join us Fridays as we delve into everything from the world of the paranormal to scary movies to creepy stuff we find around the internet. Subscribe to Freaky Fridays wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Sleep tight. Make sure you leave the lights on. Freaky Fridays is a proud member of the Podmoth Network. For more awesome pods, check out podmoth.network. Alrighty, Mom, what story do you have for us today? I'm going to be telling you about uh, genetic chimerism, which is right. like a medical condition. What's that? I don't like how that sounds. It's 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 really rare, um, but it's super interesting. Hmm. Okay. What uh, are you going to be telling us about today? The word genetic just freaks me out, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about the I five killer. Oh, we know someone who has somewhat of. A different take on this, which is my father. He yes. may have potentially had a run-in with the I five killer. We don't really know for sure, but it's an interesting take. Maybe we'll have him on to discuss it soon. Someday, yes, maybe. I'm sure he so would. So to to go with this cocktail, or sorry, to go with this story, I have a cocktail and. I understand that rosé is pronounced rosé, but it's spelled as rose. And yes. the story I have is coming out of Rose City, Portland. Right. Okay. Is, uh, nickname for Portland. So rosé, right. rose. So the cocktail I brought is rosé lemonade. And I have like an official uh, recipe, but. I'm pretty sure both of us just decided to do our own lemonade or uh, store-bought lemonade instead of making our own. Yes. Yes, because I wasn't going to make an entire batch of lemonade when I had lemonade in a container in the fridge. So So the recipe I found is uh, three-fourths of a cup of simple syrup, ten lemons, one whole bottle of rosé, and club soda. I just did some sparkling water, some lemonade, and some rosé in a glass. So, Let's Yeah, and in try. your recipe that you sent me, I scrolled down so that I could find the measurements for a single mm-hmm. glass. Did you find that? 
Oh, no, because you have to scroll a long ways just to find the full recipe. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. So, anyways, we're basically just having rosé and wine. We're having rosé, wine, and lemonade. And I thought that the uh, club soda was optional, so I didn't add it to mine. Yeah, that's fine. It does say optional on there. I just... Anytime I get a chance to add club soda in a cocktail, I do because I find it helps. Make yes. It for some reason. And and I am the opposite. I don't really like it that much in my cocktails. Yeah, so I, like if it's an optional, stuff. I don't add it. Um, I found in the bottom of that link that you sent me, it was a quarter mm-hmm. cup of the rosé to two-thirds cup of lemonade. And so that's what I made mine out of and it's not very rosé colored it's it just looks like lemonade so it watered it down a lot I couldn't find normal lemonade usually we get the simply I they didn't have just normal simply so I had to get the strawberry lemonade simply oh So. so yours is pink anyway okay yeah mine's a little more pink but I also cheated and got strawberry lime rose and it's oh actually so really you good. you so. went flavored everywhere okay i didn't yeah. so let's try i guess i'm doing a strawberry rose lemonade yeah you are i don't delicious eh. Eh. i don't know i'm also cheating i'm minus strawberry flavor that probably because all i taste is strawberry it just tastes like strawberry lemonade yeah, it tastes, eh, it's not terrible. It's not great. Huh. I don't know that I would seek that out, but I'll finish it. It's all right. I guess if you like rosé, it would probably be really good, but I don't really like wine, including rosé, so it's a meh for rose me. Rosé is kind of the only wine I really drink. I don't like wine either, but rosé just tastes like juice to me. So that's why yeah. I drink rosé. Especially when mixed with lemonade, which is already a juice. Exactly. It's just juice on juice. Okay, let's get into my i5 killer story. Yes. Randall Woodfield was born on December 26, 1950 in Salem, Oregon. While specific details about his childhood are not widely available, it is known that he grew up in a relatively stable middle-class family. Woodfield attended Newport High School where he excelled in sports, particularly football and track. While in high school, Woodfield exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on Yakina Yakina Bay Bridge. He was arrested. Well, that's not very nice. Yeah. 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 His football coaches helped conceal the incident to prevent him from being ousted from the team. So his parents forced him to attend therapy after the incident. 
Woodfield was picked up by the Portland State Vikings, where he played as a wide receiver. His athletic abilities led to him being drafted into the NFL, particularly the Green Bay Packers. His career in the NFL didn't last long as he was let go during training camp due to an indecent exposure arrest. So the second one. Oh. Yes. Wow. I think that I had heard that he was in the NFL and I completely forgot about that. I don't think he ever made it to the play, like the actual season. I he think didn't he play, was, but like, training camp. I mean, I he went to training camp and he was yeah. going to play and then got arrested and kicked off the team. So, whoops. I had completely forgotten yeah. about that part, though. There's a lot of his story that I don't remember. He he has like a very long rap sheet. So, well, after his arrest, he moved back to Oregon. Uh, this is where he would begin his crime spree. In early 1975, several Portland women were accosted by a knife-wielding man, forced to perform oral sex, and then robbed of their handbags. Ooh. Law enforcement responded to the string of crimes by having female police officers act as decoys. Which, just imagine, you're the police, like the female police officer, they're like, yeah. hey Jenkins, today you're going to pretend to be a, a right. woman that's, yeah, that. That does not sound good. <sighs> no, it does not. I don't think I would like that job. On March 3rd, 1975, Woodfield was arrested after being caught with marked money from one of the undercover officers. Upon interrogation, he confessed to the crimes, blaming poor sexual impulse control, which he claimed was a result of the use of steroids. In April okay. 1975... Woodfield pled guilty to reduce charges of second-degree robbery. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but was freed on parole in July 1979 after having served four years. It became very obvious that he was not reformed by his stint in prison. On October 11th, uh, Sherry Lynn Ader's body was discovered in her apartment by her fiancé. Oh, she no. had been to death and stabbed repeatedly in the neck and raped. Ayers, a University of Oregon graduate, had known Woodfield since second grade, having attended the same school in Newport. Oh, gosh. Ayers and Woodfield had been pen pals while he was in prison, so her family immediately gave his name to police after hearing the news of her daughter's passing. He was oh. questioned by police and refused to give a polygraph. He was later dismissed as a suspect when police discovered his blood type didn't match the evidence at the scene. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting, but it just gets worse from here. Oh, no. On November 7th, Woodfield arrived at the home of Darcy Renee Fix. Darcy was the ex of one of his college friends. Douglas Keith Altig who was 24 at the time, was at Fix's home when Woodfield arrived. Both Fix and Altig were uh, subsequently bound and shot to death, execution style in the back of the head inside their home. And Fix's 32 caliber revolver was missing from the scene. Due to his acquaintance with Fix, Woodfield was questioned about the murders, but law enforcement found no concrete evidence 
uh, to like pin the crime on him. So he was also let go. Okay. Yeah. After committing so these murders, what, what was that? I was going to say, it seems like he's targeting people he knows to begin with. Yes. And okay. It, he's also kind of mixing it up with strangers. Like, yeah. Uh, you'll see. Well, how nice so of him to mix murders, it up. After these murders, Woodfield began a series of robberies throughout the Pacific Northwest. On December 9th, 1980, Woodfield, wearing a fake beard, held up a Vancouver, Washington gas station at gunpoint. This took place in Eugene, Oregon. Four nights later, on December 3rd, he raided an ice cream parlor. On December, uh, one day later, on December 14th, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany. Albany, sorry. I know everybody gets mad when I say Albany. <laughs> I don't know why you do it. During it's one... okay. <laughs> That's how it's spelled. I don't know what to tell you. During one of the robberies, Woodfield wore what uh, appeared to be a Band-Aid or athletic tape across the bridge of his nose, which is like every football player from before I was born wore that, I feel. You never see it nowadays, right. but I guess it was popular no. for some reason. Why, why did he do that? Uh, he kind of played around with different disguises. He was he had a fake beard. He had that athletic tape and stuff. He wore some glasses I gotcha. sometimes. It was just like different disguises that he wore. Okay, really so he disguise, was using... Just having a piece of tape I was gonna on say, your nose. Like, but yeah, I was going to say, guess. a piece of tape on your nose isn't a great disguise, but what do I know? Yeah. So on December 21st, Woodfield, again wearing a fake beard, accosted a waitress in Seattle, trapping her in a restaurant bathroom and forcing her at gunpoint to masturbate him. Oh. Yeah, super weird. This guy is Due just to the getting of his crime. The police named him the I-5 bandit cuz at this point he hadn't really killed too many people, so. Right, and they probably hadn't linked him to the killings, right? Yeah, not yet. But no. his Crime spree is a lot longer, so they later were able to connect them. Right. In January, he continued his string of armed robberies and assaults. And on January 12th, he shot and wounded a female grocery store clerk in Sutherland, Cal... Uh, he shot and wounded a female grocery store clerk in Sutherland, Oregon. On January okay. 14th, two days later... A man matching the description of the I-5 bandit and wearing a false beard a false beard invaded a home occupied by two sisters, age 8 and 10. He ordered oh. the girls to undress and sexually assaulted them, forcing the, or the older girl to perform fellatio. Four days later, in Salem, a man matching the same description entered an office building and sexually abused two women, Sherry Hull and Beth Wilmot. After which he killed Hull and wounded Wilmot, leaving her for dead. So wow. this is like the first of his, he's ramping up the types of crimes that he's doing at this point. Yuck. Yeah. On January 26th and 29th, he traveled to Southern Oregon and committed robberies in Eugene, Medford, and Grants Pass. In the latter location, two females, a clerk, and a customer were assaulted by the robber. 
On February 3rd, 1981, the bodies of Donna Eckhart uh, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Charlotte Jarvis, were found together in bed at their home at Mountain Gate, California. Each had been shot shit each had been shot several times in the head. Forensic tests showed that the girl had also been sexually assaulted. The same day in Reading, a female store clerk was kidnapped and raped in a uh, like a little holdup area. The same day? Same day. This was all in a matter Jeez. of about a day or two. Wow, that's an so fast. Crime. Yeah, this he was kind of on just like a tear at this point. No kidding. An identical crime was reported in Wairika, California. On February 4th, with the same man robbing uh, an Ashland, Oregon motel that night. So we went from Reading to Ashland in the same day. Okay. And had two separate crimes. Wow. Five I mean, they're, they're only a few hours Nevada. away from each other. Yeah, but I... That's a long drive. If I'm driving from Reading to Ashland, I'm going to be tired. I'm not going to want to commit a robbery. <laughs> it's only, it's probably only like three hours. Really? Yeah. I guess Reading to Because it's a straight shot from I-5. Because if we're driving from yeah. Plymouth to Reading, I feel like it's six hours. It's not six hours. It's like three. Oh, never mind. Maybe it's not that long of a drive, but. Five days later in Corvallis, a man matching the I-5 bandit's description held up a fabric store. He molested the clerk and her customer before he left. After a long and horrible crime spree, Woodfield made his way back to Portland. He invited uh, a lot of his former classmates to the Marriott Hotel that he was staying for a Valentine's Day party. What? What is that? What, what is a Valentine's Day party? And why That's is he inviting his classmates to a, to a hotel? That's yeah. weird. Uh, super weird. And the only explanation I have is that he was planning on killing them if they did show up. Like That's the only thing that makes sense because he's clearly targeting like former classmates as well as yeah. just like random people. But That's so weird. Yeah. After no one showed up to his Valentine's Day party, he he became outraged and he drove to the uh, home of 18-year-old Julie Ruetz, who he had met while working as a bouncer at a bar in Portland. He arrived at her home around 2 a.m. on February 15th, and around 4 a.m., he raped and then shot Ruetz on, uh, in the head, killing her. Jeez. Yeah. By February 28th, the investigation was now focused on Woodfield, but by the I-5 killer, oh, but by then the I-5 bandit had struck three more times in Eugene uh, on the 18th and the 21st of February, and with another assault in Corvallis on the 25th. Detectives in Marion County assembled a call log showing Woodfield had placed called calls via calling cards at payphones, which I've never used a payphone. I don't know really what a calling card is. So a calling card was like almost like a prepaid credit card 
that you could use to make long distance calls from. You had to uh, dial like a certain number and then it gave you a pin code and then you had to dial that pin code to get access and make a long distance call. So it was prepaid, basically. You could buy like a $25 calling card and then use that. Because long distance okay. calls were expensive and you couldn't do it without that from like a long distance, you know, from like a payphone, for example. Makes sense. Kind of like a, like when you rent like a track phone nowadays, you like buy the minutes and stuff and you put money on the Yeah. Card. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there was logs of him using this call card at payphones near the merger sites. So that's oh, kind of how they were okay. able to, like, notice that it was Woodfield specifically. Okay. On March 5th, 1981, Woodfield was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation after Lisa Garcia positive, positively identified him in a photo lineup. His apartment in Springfield, Oregon, was subsequently searched two days later, and inside law enforcement discovered a spent 32 shell casing, which is the pistol that was robbed from uh, Fix's home. Okay. Um, they also were able to match a roll of duct tape that he had to tape found on victims. On March 7th, Woodfield was taken into custody after being positively identified by several Oregon robbery victims. Nice. On March 16th, Indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, and attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and illegal possession of firearms were, uh, and illegal possession of firearms were indicted from various jurisdictions from Washington and Oregon. Okay. On June 26, 1981, after three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted of all counts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. Nice. Woodfield is currently serving his sentence at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. Wow. Woodfield was suspected in as many as 44 homicides. Oh. Yeah. So That's a lot. Fairly prolific. Yeah. During his time in the penitentiary, Woodfield has married three times and divorced twice. So. Good Lord. He's been getting busy I'll... in there. I don't <laughs> I don't understand that at all. And I know that a lot of people don't understand it, but it just doesn't. It happens a lot. Like pen yeah. pal, like crazy pen pal ladies that are. Yeah. Ugh. No, I don't Super get weird. it. Especially the crimes it is that weird. he did. Like... Yeah. He was convicted of rape multiple times. Like, I don't know why. Yep. I don't. I don't understand if it. Want, if you want to date a prisoner that did that, I would recommend therapy. <laughs> We're not sponsored by BetterHelp, but maybe. We'll right. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> I don't. I just don't understand it. It's so um, unusual to me to even think about like fantasize about that type of shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I no marriage is perfect, but I, I mean, if you're going to be married to somebody who you never 
get to spend any time with. I don't, I don't get that. Yeah. Especially if they're a convicted murderer. No, thank you. let's what what's your story let's hear your story okay so my story is about a very rare genetic disorder and it's called uh genetic chimerism and it's all based on um some strange things that happen during developmental processes early on so we'll get into that but is basically looking at DNA. And DNA, as we all know, it's pretty well-known um, thing in this day and age. Each person, other than identical twins, will have their own distinct biological markers, their own DNA profile. We've covered stories about criminals being caught through the use of DNA identifiers, including the first case known to use DNA towards the conviction of a criminal. That was episode 30 of our podcast on Colin Pitchfork. So if you haven't heard that one and you want to hear about the first case that used DNA for conviction, that is the episode to go listen to. DNA is also used for non-criminal purposes, though. Um, In this day and age, people willingly submit their DNA to registry sites like Ancestry.com, or use 23andMe in an effort to find long-lost family or just find out their genetic background. The DNA is identical in every cell in our bodies from hair to blood to skin cells. We get half of our DNA from our father and half from our mother. In Washington State, DNA is also used for someone applies um, when they apply for government assistance, like welfare, and in this case, it was... Described as welfare, but also child support. So in 2002, Lydia Fairchild was a mother of two children and was pregnant with her third child. She had recently separated from the children's father, Jamie Townsend, and she had applied for government assistance. She asked for the state to enforce the child support laws. Routinely, the parents must submit DNA for this type of assistance. Lydia and Jamie and the two children each submitted cheek swabs. The DNA from both parents was analyzed against the children, and there were a few surprises. Most people might think when I say surprises that that might mean that Jamie wasn't the father of at least one or more of the children. But in this case, the DNA showed that Jamie was the father of Lydia's children. Strangely, though, the analysis showed that Lydia was not the mother. Of course, the first assumption was that Lydia was scamming someone, yes. And they were trying to figure it out. They thought uh, some initial theories were that she was perpetrating some type of fraud, um, either against, you know, the welfare system to get assistance or that something else was going on. Authorities thought maybe she had abducted the children 
or that she was involved in some type of a surrogacy scam. They also suggested that she might just be trying to claim benefits for other people's children for financial gain. So, you know, if they were maybe like her sister's kids or something, but she was trying to get uh, cash benefits for them or something. So they were thinking, obviously, she's genetically not the mother. So what's her game here? Although she had records for her older children's births, there were questions about their authenticity. She had their birth certificates, which had their footprints proving the children being tested were the children from the births. And Lydia had pictures of herself holding each of the children days after giving birth to them, but the pictures and the documents, according to the prosecutors, didn't prove anything. They insisted DNA results are ironclad, you are not the mother, and so what are you trying to do? The DNA tests were done again with the same results. Both cheek swabs and blood tests were done, but according to the tests, Lydia was not the mother. Uh, Soon prosecutors were involved. That's okay. (laughs) Soon prosecutors were involved and they requested that Lydia's children be removed from her care since they seemed, there seemed to be evidence that they were not her actual children. I don't believe they ever did put them in foster care, but that's what they were trying to accomplish. They were trying to get the children put in foster care. And because they wanted to charge her with fraud, they said, you know, the children are in danger because she's trying to do this fraudulent thing. But I I don't know if the kids ever did get put in foster care. Lydia tried to get legal help. Like giving birth? Yes. Unless she did like a home birth? No, there were records. But they said, those records don't prove anything. Yes, you gave birth, but it wasn't to these particular children. Because if she had given birth, then those kids would have her DNA. So they're just, they're very, very confused by it. She tried to get an attorney to help her because when you have the state involved and the prosecutors and they're talking about putting your children in foster care, you need an attorney. But she couldn't get an attorney to take her case because they all said, well, the DNA is foolproof. So 100% these kids are yours, are are not yours. So we're not going to take your case because how would we ever defend it? How are we going to, you're insisting you're the mother, but the DNA proves that you're not. So just prior to having her third pregnancy induced, a judge ordered the birth be monitored and blood samples be taken of both the child and Lydia. A lab technician witnessed the birth and took samples from the baby and the mother. When the blood was analyzed, it showed that Lydia did not match this child either. But the lab technician was there and said, yes, I witnessed this birth. And yes, this is, she gave birth to this baby and we took samples from this baby and from her. So then, of course, they're questioning, well, maybe this was a surrogacy and she had somebody else's egg. And so maybe that's what's going on. And she's insisting, no, that is not what happened. So... 
Because the lab technician was there and took the samples, Lydia was finally able to convince an attorney to take the case. In researching this strange circumstance, a medical journal article was located by attorneys. This article discussed a very rare genetic occurrence that had been detected in a woman from Boston. Her name was Karen Keegan. Several years before, Karen was very ill and in need of a kidney transplant. Two of her three, oh, can't talk. Two of her three adult children were tested to see if they would be a good donor, but the test results showed that Karen was not their mother. So another instance where DNA said, you are not the mother. And she is saying, yes, I am. Confused by the results, Karen asked her doctors to help her determine how her DNA didn't match her children. Genetic researchers became involved and tested many genetic samples from Karen, including hair and blood. Each sample showed no match until they decided to check her internal organs. Karen had previously had a biopsy on her thyroid, and they were able to test that sample. They discovered that her thyroid cells contained a different DNA signature than the previous areas they had tested. Looking deeper into her genetic background, they took samples from Karen's mother and brother. Shockingly, they discovered that Karen's children were an actual genetic match to Karen's brother, which I don't quite understand, and it's super weird, but obviously that would be impossible for her brother to be the mother of her children, and so, of course, the geneticists were still very confused, but they were like, that's super weird that the brother's a genetic match, but not the mother. So they continued testing Karen and discovered that she actually contained two sets of DNA in all of her tissues, but in different percentages. Certain tissues had one mm. dominant DNA profile, while other tissues had a different dominant profile. So I'm going to call them profile A and B, just for clarity's sake. So imagine Karen's blood had more cells containing profile A, but a few cells of profile B, and her thyroid tissue had more B than A. So when they tested these different areas, they just happen to get the more dominant source of that tissue sample, and that's why it didn't match. So with this groundbreaking information, the researchers published a paper in a medical journal. In a medical journal, This is the article that would end up saving Lydia from the fraud charges the prosecution was threatening her with. Of course, they needed proof, though, so Lydia submitted to more testing. They found the answer after taking a swab of her cervix, which finally showed different DNA that matched all of her children. Now there was legal proof that Lydia was the mother. Geneticists call this strange occurrence chimerism. So it happens when two different eggs are fertilized at the same time, and those eggs fuse within the first four days of development. If it occurs after day four, then the two fused eggs would be conjoined twins. 
not a single individual. So you'd have two separate systems with potentially some shared systems. But because it was before day four, it's just one person. It can be difficult to tell when this has happened, but sometimes the person has skin with patches of different pigmentation. So I watched a um, documentary on this case and they showed a baby where below the belly button, the right half of the abdomen was one color and the left half was a completely different color. And it was like somebody drew a line with a Sharpie. Like you could tell complete different, not just like a patch like on, you know, like a mole or, or just some discoloration to the skin, a freckle or something legit like patches. And they showed another one that like, it was like a patchwork quilt of alternating colors down the torso. So like the chest was one color on right and then it was on the left. And then on the lower abdomen was a different, it was like cross squares. It was so so interesting looking. But the skin discoloration was not present in either Lydia or Karen's case. So it made it a little bit more difficult to identify them as having a genetic anomaly. So they had no outward signs of being genetic chimeras. Um, In both of their cases, two individualized fertilized eggs were female But in some cases, one egg is male and one is female, which leads to a hermaphrodite. Researchers don't know how prevalent this occurs, but it's believed that there are less than 40 people in the entire world that have chimerism. Weird. Super strange. Super strange. I... I'd never heard of that before. I mean, obviously, there's like the the Greek mythology, like Chimera, which is right. a mixture between two animals, which I kind of looked it up like while you were talking. And that's what they mm-hmm. that's why they named it chim- Chimerism is because. Yes. It's the, the fusion of two. But yeah. Mm-hmm. It's super weird. Yeah, you'll have to go like look at some of the pictures or um, I put a link in our show notes to the uh, documentary that's on there. And it, like I said, it shows pictures of people who have that patchwork, the patches of different skin pigmentation. And it's kind of interesting. Weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have a chaser for us today? I do. Of course you do. So my chaser is uh, Lil Wayne and 2 Chains just dropped a new album. I, by the oh, time this okay. comes out, it'll be last month. But okay, I listened to those a lot when I was in high school. So the fact that they made an album together in 2023, it kind of like throws me back to 2016, 2017. So. That's, that's awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 
a lot of you their said songs it's coming out soon you haven't heard it yet oh you no, have heard out, it? it yeah it came out this they came out this month by the time people are hearing it last month but oh gotcha okay yeah I know because we're ahead. There's a couple of really good songs on there, but a lot of them didn't really tickle my ears the way I wanted. But it's it's a good listen. Oh. I'd recommend people who like the two artists go check it out. But what's your chaser? That's mom? kind of a bummer. My chaser is a watch recommendation, and that is the show Upload on Prime. It's where, in the future, they have developed technology if you die you can upload your consciousness into a giant computer server and then you live in this make-believe virtual world until they Mm. find a way to bring you back to life physically and we just finished watching season three and so there's, of course, a cliffhanger for season for future seasons, but um, we watched the first season a while ago and then just binged two and three. There's not very many episodes in either one, so it was fairly quick to binge, but it's a good show. It's it's cute and it's kind of fun to watch. And Sounds so good. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a good show. Well, I think that brings us right to the end of this episode. It does. We about that weird genetic disorder, disease. Yes. I don't know what to call it. Some kind of, we're just going to call it a genetic anomaly. Anomaly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you had a beautiful Thank you. episode. Love you, Mom. Love you. Bye. Hey friends, thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.